We're nearing the end of our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of the people of God rebuilding the city of God. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, which, as we saw back in the book of Revelation, is precisely what the church is called to do today. With God's help and filled with the Holy Spirit, we are building a new Jerusalem. And so we're turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how to go about doing that. Now, I want to tell you up front, this is not going to be the most emotionally compelling sermon you've ever heard. Surprise, surprise, right? But I want to plead with you to listen attentively because there is a principle within Nehemiah chapter 10 that lies at the very foundation of what it means to live the Christian life. So let's remember the context. The people of Israel have returned from exile and they have rebuilt Jerusalem. They have rejoiced and they have feasted and they have mourned and they have repented. And at the end of chapter 9, they set out to renew their covenant with God. They actually draft a document to be signed by their nobility. We see that list of signatures in the first 27 verses of chapter 10, and then the latter half, which we read, records the particulars of the document they were signing. We are told exactly what the people were recommitting themselves to. Verse 29, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of Yahweh, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. In short, they are making a covenant to keep the covenant. They're making a covenant to keep the covenant. They are recommitting themselves to covenant faithfulness. They are recommitting themselves to the law of God. And of course, this is not merely a matter of knowing the law of God. This is a matter of obeying the law of God. However, in seeking to obey the law of God, these people were faced with a dilemma. And it's, and it's very similar to a dilemma we face today. For the people in Nehemiah chapter 10, the law of God was already an ancient text. And for us, the law of God is even more ancient, right? But over time, things change. And over the course of centuries, things change a lot. From the days of Moses to the days of Nehemiah, a lot had changed. And so the people in Nehemiah chapter 10 must ask the question, what does it mean to obey the law of God today? What does it mean to obey the law of God today? And Christians, followers of Jesus, have to ask the same question. But in in asking that question, we need to be clear about what we're not doing. We are not relativizing the law of God. We're not looking for excuses to wiggle free from the commandments of God. Nor are we relegating the law of God to the ancient past, as though we modern enlightened Christians don't have to take it seriously. What does it mean to obey the law of God today? We need to be asking that question, but we need to be asking that question with a high degree of reverence for the law and with an eager willingness to obey the law. That's the example I think we're given in Nehemiah 10. Often, Modern Christians hear a call to obey the law and we say snarky things like, oh, so I can't trim the edges of my beard. 
Oh, so I can't uh, wear anything made of multiple fabrics. Oh, so I can't plant two different types of seeds in my garden. But often this, this just reveals a lack of reverence for the law of God and a disobedient heart. On the other hand, when we approach the law of God with a high degree of reverence and an eager willingness to obey, we are better able to apply the law of God to our modern context. Again, Nehemiah 10 records the particulars of what the people were recommitting themselves to, and they make three distinct commitments. The first concerns intermarriage. The second concerns the Sabbath. And the third concerns support for the temple. For each of these commitments, the people had to ask the question, what does it mean to obey the law of God today? So, commitment number one, verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we will not intermarry with people who do not worship Yahweh. This principle comes from Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7. In Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, God promises to drive out the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And God commands the people, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In other words, intermarriage and idolatry go hand in hand. However, the the people in Nehemiah's day could not, strictly speaking, follow the exact letter of that law. Why? Well, because most of these nations no longer existed. Over the past few generations, the Assyrian Empire had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, which had been conquered by the Persian Empire. And throughout Throughout that period of geopolitical chaos, most of the nations listed there just disappeared into the melting pot. So if God prohibited intermarriage with specific nations, and then those nations no longer exist, what does it mean to obey the law of God today? The people had to read the law of God, derive the principle therein, and then apply it to their own situation. They were not off the hook simply because those conditions had changed. They knew the will of God, and they were eager to obey it. And by the way, the authors of the New Testament have the same posture and perspective on the law of God. For instance, concerning intermarriage, the Apostle Paul instructs the Corinthians, "...do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness?" Now, Jesus never explicitly said that. So, how does Paul know that he's right? Because he knew the law of God. Just like the people in Nehemiah's day, the authors of the New Testament were reading the law of God, deriving the principle therein, and applying it to followers of Jesus. Okay, commitment number two. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Okay, so the law says a lot concerning the Sabbath, but here's a sampling from Exodus chapter 20. 
The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's pretty clear. However, for the people of Nehemiah's day, there was a loophole. Within this more cosmopolitan Jerusalem, the Jews were living in close proximity with foreign nations, and there were all sorts of foreign vendors and merchants. There was international trade in Jerusalem. And so, technically, the Jews could observe the Sabbath for themselves and then simply purchase whatever they needed from foreign vendors. They could refrain from work while continuing to benefit from the work of others. By the way, this is largely how our society operates today. Most of the people in this room are technically resting today. But the manner in which we enjoy that rest depends upon a broader economy fueled by Sabbath work. And the reason we do this is because uh, we want to. We like food and we like football and, and because it generates a lot of money. But the people in Nehemiah 10 agreed to close the loophole. Not only do they agree to rest on the Sabbath, they agree to give rest to others on the Sabbath. And beyond that, they agreed to observe the sabbatical year. They were giving rest to the land every seventh year. No tilling, no planting, no sowing, no harvesting. And then beyond that, they agreed to cancel all debt in the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, if you were indebted to someone else, your debt was canceled. Just imagine the absurdity of these commitments. Each of these things requires a fundamental trust in the Lord to provide. Resting once a week, giving rest to the land. That was their source of income, by the way. Giving rest to their source of income. Canceling debt. These things could only be practiced by people who trusted in the Lord to provide. You see, in the Bible, good stewardship is a value. Making wise investments is a value. Skillfully managing what God gives to you is a value. And even growing what God gives to you is a biblical value. But strictly speaking, maximizing profit is not a value. There are many things more important than maximizing profit. Chief among them is the worship of God. And that brings us to commitment number three. The overall principle uh, of commitment number three is stated in verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. But it's a long passage, and to summarize it, the people agree to give yearly a third part of a shekel. They agree to cast lots for the wood offering, they agreed to give the first fruits of the ground, the first fruits of the tree, the first fruits of their son, the firstborn of their sons, and the firstborn of their livestock. They agreed to give wine and oil to the priests, and they agreed to pay the tithe. In short, they agreed to provide everything necessary for the proper worship of God. Here's the thing only a couple of those things are actually stipulated in the law. So the people knew in principle 
that the house of God was not to be neglected, but they had to apply that principle in a fresh and modern way. They had to ask the question, what does it mean to obey the law of God today? Now, perhaps this goes without saying, but to be committed to the house of God today is to be committed to the church. And I I hope you know that I am never really itching to talk about money. Um, But when the Bible presents the topic, it is my job before God not to sidestep that topic. So listen, Sojourn Oak Forest is, is blessed in so many ways. Sojourn Oak Forest is blessed in so many ways, and we have many people who are giving generously. But as a whole, I think it's safe to say that we are not currently supporting the house of God in the full spirit of Nehemiah chapter 10. We have room to grow, and, and that is perfectly fine so long as we grow. And this also applies to attendance. If we give regularly, but we attend irregularly, we are not supporting the house of God as we should. The house of God is worthy of your resources, but it's also worthy of your presence. The house of God is worthy of your listening ear and your singing mouth and your bended knees and your lifted hands. It's worthy of those things. Think about it. Why do you think the people of Nehemiah 10 were so eager to offer their support? Not only to make less, but to give away more. What made them so eager to do that? Well, they believed Jerusalem to be the dwelling place of God. They believed deep down that the city they had rebuilt was the center and locus of God's activity in the world. And until we believe deep down that the church is the dwelling place of God, that the church is the center and locus of God's activity in the world, we will not support her in the full spirit of Nehemiah 10. If we are to be the holy city of God within the city of Houston, we simply must commit ourselves to supporting his house. If we were to see a a corporate commitment to the house of God in the full spirit of Nehemiah 10, including prayer and fasting and feasting and repentance and giving, I, I can think of no clearer indication of revival. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. If we desire to see the city of God rebuilt in our generation, we will have to actually demonstrate that desire with our actions and with our wallets. Now, having said that, I want to close by returning to the main theme of chapter 10, which is the law of God. The people of Nehemiah 10 were committed to the house of God because they were committed to the law of God. It's from the Bible that we learn the importance of the church. And more than that, it's from the Bible that we derive the wisdom we need to follow Jesus in a modern world. 
You know, the Bible does not give us an explicit answer to every modern question. Is abortion murder? What about assisted suicide? Should pornography be illegal? How about marijuana? How about no-fault divorce? How much time is too much time to spend on, on social media? How much Netflix is too much Netflix? The Bible does not give us explicit answers to these questions. We have to derive the answers by discerning biblical principles and applying those principles to our modern lives. That is the work of biblical wisdom. Guided by the law of God, we derive the principled wisdom we need to remain faithful to Jesus in an ever-changing world. Every generation has to do this anew. So, Nehemiah 10 is demonstrating how the word of God is to give shape to our lives as individuals, as households, as a church, as a neighborhood, as a nation. You see, it does no good to know the word of God if the word of God has no impact on our everyday lives. We can participate in Bible study after Bible study, but it does no good to know what God says if we don't take seriously the call to obey what he says. And again, in an ever-changing world, this requires wisdom. Wisdom is not about finding an answer for every question. Wisdom is knowing how to apply the word of God to your particular situation. As a child, when you were a child, you experienced the world through a set of rules. When you became an adult... You were no longer subject to those rules in the same way. But hopefully, if you are wise, if you have cultivated wisdom, you will continue living in accordance with the principles you learned in childhood, right? And so the Bible does not give us an answer for every question because God wants us to grow up from childhood to adulthood. God wants us to mature, to cultivate wisdom. And to cultivate, to cultivate biblical wisdom is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was a master at applying the law with wisdom. Jesus was a great moral teacher because he was steeped in the law of God. He had a high regard for the law. He was eager to obey it, and therefore he was wise. And following Jesus means having that same humble posture before the law of God, before the word of God. To obey the law is to love the lawgiver. Jesus is the king of kings. What does that mean? It means he's the Lord of nothing less than the entire cosmos. It means he is the head of all rule and authority, as we are told in Colossians. As such, the lordship of Jesus should seep its way into every nook and cranny of our existence, both public and private. Every person, every place, every thing, every moment is to be, pro- is to be brought under the lordship of Christ. I'm talking about obedience. Otherwise, otherwise, we are functionally conceding that there is a part of our world over which Christ is not king. 
There is no part of our world over which he is not king. There is no part of your private existence over which he is not king. Wherever God's people hold the law in high regard, wherever God's people are willing and eager to obey, I believe the kingdom is close at hand. And so if we want to see his kingdom come in our generation, we we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to obey the law of God today? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a good father. Your law is good and lovely and worthy of our full obedience. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for giving us a lamp to light our path. Jesus, you are the living embodiment of what it means to live a life of humble obedience, and we want to follow in your footsteps. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom. Give us biblical wisdom. Teach us your law. Teach us your word. Guide us as we seek to apply it in the modern world. And may your kingdom come in our midst, in our neighborhood, in our city, and around the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.